I'll tell you what made me think about the need to talk about prayer at uh, uh, Temple Baptist Church in Ruston this year. I, I saw from a distance that you guys went through a catastrophe back with tornadoes some several months ago. And I hope that uh, everything is all right, you're doing well. I heard great reports about how this church stepped up and helped a number of people in the city during a difficult time, and I thank the Lord for that. Well, I'm from the deep south. You know, uh, Dale is from Bogalusa, and I'm from uh, Poplarville, and I do need to get off the sidewalk and onto the weeds just for a little while, Dale, and tell you that in my church, I have a lady who grew up in Bogalusa. She, she doesn't think a lot of you. <laughs> no, she doesn't even know you. And it's probably just as well, don't you think? <clears throat> yeah. I, I gave him his dad's name and his mother's name. She said, no. She said, I've lived there all my life. I've never heard of those people. Did y'all do, do a background check on him when you got him to be here? <laughs> no, Dale, I'm kidding. Uh, but I, I, I'm from the Deep South, and we go through hurricanes quite a bit. And when we went through Hurricane Katrina, there was something that leveled us. Uh, with regard to God's ways among us. Sometimes we can become rather complacent. Sometimes we can become rather arrogant when it comes to our relationship with God. Things go along so well, and we uh, enjoy the relationship with the Lord. He's gracious, and His mercy is new every morning. His love for us pours out uh, into our lives through, through the Holy Spirit who is given to us. And we live in such an enchanting kind of relationship with Him that sometimes it takes a natural disaster for us to be able to step back and say, you know what? We serve a mighty God. A God who has control over heaven and earth. Now, I'm not going to stand up here and offer an explanation as to what God is doing when, when storms pass through, but I am going to bear witness as a believer that once one passes through the magnitude of which we experienced in Katrina and the anniversary of which is just right around uh, the corner for us, when something like that happens to us, it has a way of tempering our uh, arrogance has a way of helping us to realize that we are just very frail and that any one of us could find ourselves in the face of disaster uh, at any moment, that we are uh, people who are not as immortal as sometimes we think we are. And you know what else I've come to think? That probably with this many people sitting here tonight, I would imagine there are a lot of folks who if I were to ask you to raise your hands, you would raise your hand and say, Pastor, it didn't take a tornado or a bad storm for me to come to my knees because my life has been difficult and I've been trying to seek the Lord and I don't exactly know what He's up to. And so you don't need to convince me about the way that tragedy and difficulty can knock the props right out from under us. It happens to all of us, and uh, the Lord directed me to talk about prayer from the perspective of Luke chapter 11. Uh, as I said, when I noticed from a distance that, uh, that, that, uh, the, that you had those moments when you saw that uh, this, this, is, this is sometimes can be a very dangerous world. Well, in light of that, uh, I want to call attention to what the disciples were experiencing when they were with Jesus. They had been with Him now for quite a while, and they knew Him to be a Savior who uh, prayed. I'll talk more about that in just a moment, but for now, um, it's enough to say that the disciples were aware of the reality that their Master prayed. And when He prayed, uh, things happened. He prayed often, He prayed regularly, He prayed in a crisis, 
And as I said, I'll get back to more specifics in just a moment. But they ask him the question that I trust that you will ask the Lord. Hopefully you'll be able to come to the sessions and we can talk more about prayer. But if you uh, have to work or have other obligations, certainly understand that. But I do hope that you'll join me in taking Luke chapter 11 verse 1 to heart and ask the Lord the question that the disciples asked Jesus back in the first century. Lord, would you teach us to pray? Would you teach us to pray? Now they said, like John taught his disciples, to, to me what he's referring to, what they're referring to there, or rather what this one disciple was referring to there, was nothing more than saying, it seems to be something that we're authorized to ask you, that is to teach us to pray, because John taught his disciples how to pray, John the, uh, the Baptist. You can see him when he uh, preached repentance and people got right with God. One of the first disciplines that John the Baptist Baptist probably tried to teach them is the discipline of prayer, where you learn how to talk with God, you learn how to spend time with God, and in that environment in which you are just with God, you have these opportunities in which you can speak to God and hear from Him and take your request to Him, and sometimes do nothing more than just be silent in His presence. I'm quite sure that John the Baptist uh, taught his disciples how to pray. And maybe that gave the disciples a footing to put one of the disciples up to asking Jesus, well, he taught his disciples to pray. W would you be willing to teach us to pray? Now, I want you to take that question seriously, that request seriously, because, because you have learned and I have learned across the years, and sometimes we have a tendency to forget it, that uh, when it gets right down to it, if we're doing the Lord's work, we can't do it without Him. Now, if we do the Lord's work, we can count on Him to help us. But we cannot do the Lord's work without Him helping us. Otherwise, we'll be acting just on our own strength. We'll be going in a direction that we think is good in the best way that we can uh, produce some kind of result. But still, we, we'll be lacking when it comes to understanding what it is we need to help us to go the distance. When we do the Lord's work, we can count on Him to help. But we should never think about doing the Lord's work without asking Him for His help. When I ask you to take into consideration the appeal of the disciples and make that your appeal and my appeal as we move ahead in the days together, I think we're on good ground because if we ask the Lord to teach us to pray, what we're inviting Him to do is to help us in the work that He has given us to do. And so what I want to do now is to, is to drive home that point and to argue the point with you by pointing out how in the Scripture we have a number of places in which God's people needed to do something, and so they asked Him to help them with the response that He did. And as we take a look at those uh, episodes from the Old Testament and then from the New Testament, what we're going to, to learn, uh, Lord willing tonight, what we're going to learn is that there's value in asking the Lord to teach us to pray. That there is, uh, uh, there's a great deal of, of uh, joy that comes to us when we spend time in prayer. And there is a simple path that He's given us to take when it comes to uh, talking to Him in prayer. That simple path has to do with us being 
being in His presence, asking Him for what we need, and then trusting Him to give the response in whatever way He thinks best. Now let's go back to the Old Testament, to the book of Job. And I want to talk with you for a little while about how that man went through a great deal of turmoil. He suffered in ways that I could never imagine. You think about it. Job was probably, um, his life was probably uh, lived out in the early days of the the, uh, nation of Israel because it says that he would make sacrifices for his family. My impression is that maybe he made these sacrifices before there was a tabernacle or anything like that. So he was in those days in which he was a father to his children, a husband to a wife, and he was also the priest for his family. And he loved his family. He watched them all grow up. He had a number of children, and they all seemed to be doing well. And if they if they got to the point that they got out of line, he would go to the Lord and he would pray and ask God to help them to uh, uh, stay in line. And he would make sacrifices for them uh, at the altar to to confess their sin for them, as it were, because he loved his family so very much. So you can imagine how he must have felt when he got the news, one person after the next about all of the disasters that were taking place in his life with his children dying and with the, cro- the, the animals di- just completely obliterated his life. Everything was gone. And it all happened because the enemy, the enemy was out there roaming about and saying to the father, you know, Job wouldn't be as good if he had trouble. And the Lord said, no, I made him. I know the kind of man he is. And so, uh, you, so the, the enemy said, well, let's just see. Let's just see. And as he moved along in the tragedy, um, the, the, the section of the, of the book of Job teaches us that the enemy came to the Lord and said, well, uh, the Lord said he's a man of integrity, correct? Can't you see? And the enemy said, well, skin for skin. It's one thing to lose all of the stuff that's around you, but when you start getting close to a person's body, then things change. I guarantee you, the enemy said, as soon as he starts having pains within his own body, he is going to curse you. And and the Lord said, you cannot take his life. Praise be to God. Life belongs to the Lord. I don't care how many Halloween carnivals try to promote the notion that life can be taken by some, uh, some monster-type figure that scares children. That is, uh, that, uh, there's a Greek word for that, it's baloney. Because the life, life belongs to the Lord. He takes it, it's His to give, and it's His to take. So Job went down the road of suffering, and he had uh, th- three friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. They were... Um, good friends in the first part of the episode that we have in the opening chapters of the book of Job. You know why? Because they went to him and they sat with him in his physical agony that was, had been inflicted upon him to the point that uh, it's very difficult for me to describe the wretched situation in which he found himself. And these three friends came and they, you know what they did? They did their very best work They did their very best work when they came and sat with him and did not say one word. It's the ministry of presence. Now, we do not want to forget that because we're going to move along and see that in just a little while, how it's played out in our lives when it comes to the Lord God in our own hearts when it comes to prayer. 
But these three friends heard Job talk about how he was a person of integrity, that uh, the whole notion of cash register justice that they had uh, thought was God's way of uh, punishing people who had done something wrong if they got sick or if they had tragedy. Job was the first person to stand up in their lives and say, yeah, but that doesn't work here because I know, uh, I know the Lord and I have been faithful to Him. And they started offering all sorts of explanations, and none of them worked. They argued, and they had cycles of these arguments between the four of them. And along the way, you'll notice that every once in a while, as he would argue with his friends, he would also argue with God. And he asked him why questions. Now, I want to ask you this. Have you ever got asked God why questions? In, in Job, you find him asking questions like, why was I born? Why didn't I die when I was brought into the world? Why am I going through all of this trouble? And you see where in one place in particular he asked a series of why questions, one after the next, after the next, after the next. He was praying and he was asking why, and he teaches us by what, he, what happened to him that you know what? When we ask why questions, sometimes we get silence in return. And when we have a, and if we're not careful and if we're not wise, we will interpret the silence for ab absence. And we'll think that because it, God isn't answering my prayer, then God must have left the building. Now, I'm looking at the faces of people who are nodding in affirmation because you have been there just like I have been there. He asked why questions. And the, and the frustration made him angry. And I don't mean this in a bad way. Please don't misunderstand me, but I must tell you the truth. I want to be your friend, but I'm not your friend if I don't tell you the truth. Sometimes when we find ourselves in physical and relational and other kinds of pain all piled in at once, it creates a kind of arrogance in us so that we think that we are deserving of a little more attention because we are in pain. Now see, that, that could almost hurt your feelings if, if you weren't brothers and sisters in Christ. Some of you would gather up your Bibles and, and walk out the door, and that'd be the last time we talk. But you know how it is. Uh, we, we, as, as ministers, sometimes I've noticed how when people get sick and they, and they get uh, upset about their sickness, they want people to tend to them, and they think that God ought to tend to them. And so they ask God those questions in their prayer, why? Why don't you help me? Why don't you do something? And all they get back is the silence. And then the, the silence turns into more frustration and more anger, and the poor people then to do what Job, begin to do what Job did. And there was a time in which he said, you know what? Do you know what? There are times when I would like to, I would like to face you like a prince. Sometimes our pain can make us so arrogant that we consider ourselves something like royalty. That there's a special place for us in the mind of God because we're suffering. Now, I'm not saying that he's not attentive, but sometimes that puts us in a position in our prayer in which it's almost like we're shaking our fist in the face of God and saying, you know what? I'd like to put you in a boxing ring, but I don't want to have you here just you and me. I want a referee. That's sort of what Job said in one of those arguments that he had with God. And he went on and on, and he was frustrated, and he talked to God about his frustration, and there was one chapter after the next, after the next, after the next, in which there was nothing from God. He was silent. 
Then there was this young guy in the college choir. His name was Elihu. Now, it doesn't say that he was in the college choir, but if I were writing the book of Job, that's what I would say. Now, he was a young man who had learned a lot of secondhand information about God. And so he did deliver the truth about God in his ways to Job and his suffering. But the point you do not want to overlook is that when Job was suffering and he said his last word to God, he folded his arms and didn't say, another thing. And then in chapter 38 verse 1, after Elihu did all the talking he wanted to do, God spoke up. And he said to Job, you've been seeking me, and today you're going to find me. And he said, Job, I want to ask you a question. Where were you when that little lion was born the other day? Were you there when I formed the earth that provided a place for that little lion to be born? Where were you when I decided that I would create heaven and earth? Job, where were you when I decided that I would take the snow and package it and put it away until the time that I wanted it to be displayed? And he went on and with Job to try to help him to change his perspective on God's ways And so eventually Job saw that he did not know what he was talking about when he was talking about being angry at God and feeling like he was justified in folding his arms in the face of God and having no longer any conversation with him. And he said, I have said things that I didn't know anything about. And you can rest assured that I won't say them again. And God responded to him by saying, but Job, I want to take you a little farther here now. Let's put you on the throne and you be God for a while and you decide what is best. You decide what is justice. You decide what is right. I can guarantee you this. Now the word guarantee is not in the Bible passage. That's a loose Argel Smith paraphrase. But God said to him, I can guarantee you this. If you were God, you wouldn't have made a crocodile, would you? Because they're ugly and mean and they can hurt, and there's no redeeming value in a crocodile. I'll tell you this, he would have done just, had just as big of an impact if he would have said to Job, Job, if you were God, you wouldn't have made mosquitoes, right? I would say, exactly right. I don't understand mosquitoes. I don't understand why they're here. And then he went on from there, and he said, Job, if uh, you were God, you wouldn't have made uh, a rhinoceros either, would you? Big old bulky creature, scare you half to death. But I did. The fact is, I know more than you know. And sometimes you don't understand my ways. But what I need you to do is to trust me, to know that I am doing what's best for you and for for your uh, present situation and for the future. And the Bible says that Job repented. And he said, I am so sorry. You see what prayer did for him? When we pray, when we pray, we have the needs met that only prayer can render. The needs that prayer can meet prompt us to ask the question, Lord, would you teach me to pray? And some of us in this room would have to say, you know, I really gave up on praying a long time ago when God disappointed me to the point that I could never figure out why He caused this difficulty, this tragedy, this injustice in my life. 
And perhaps what needs to happen is that we go to the Father and have the Father say to us, I know you don't understand, but I need you to trust me. And I need you to stop trying to do my job for me because you need to understand that I know what I'm doing and I love you. And if you look at the last chapter of the book of Job, you'll find something that's very important. Job began to pray for his friends. He had repented of his own sin of becoming arrogant. And then he turned and he turned that, re, that fresh heart that was born out of repentance into an opportunity for intercession for the people who had caused him pain. And the Bible says that when he began to pray for his friends who had hurt him, then God began to bless him in ways that were much larger than he could have ever imagined. My friends, when we ask God, to, when we ask the Lord to teach us to pray, the needs that prayer can meet begin to be, be, begin to be addressed so that we are like Job at the end of his chapter where we are at peace with God and we're ready to take on and the, whatever's in front of us. And we learn a kind of faith that's very important. Some of us have a kind of faith that trusts God if He gives us what we want. But this kind of faith that grows as a result of a, inter, a, a prayer time with the Lord has us being the kind of people who will trust God no matter what He does because we know He's doing what is right. And the why questions then be turn, turn into what questions. Instead of asking, why is this pain, why am I experiencing this pain? The, the Spirit of God prompts us to ask other questions like, what do you want me to learn from this? Who do you want me to make an influence on because of the suffering that I'm experiencing? Just the other day I read the story of a person who was incarcerated. It was a missionary who was incarcerated in something like a concentration camp. And the days were difficult, he said. Difficult indeed. But he passed by that very place where he had been incarcerated and he said to the person with whom he was talking, he said, there are days that I want to go back in there because the moments I had with God and that difficulty have never been reproduced since I've been set free. Who knows how God can answer prayer and what He can do in the process of helping us. But like Job, we begin to see that the, the, there are needs that prayer can meet so it's important for us to ask, Lord, would you teach us uh, to pray? Well, I have some other examples, but I want to, uh, many other examples, but I want to scoot on over to one that you find in uh, the book of 2 Kings, chapter uh, 19. It's a story of Hezekiah. Hezekiah was one of those lights in a dark place. He was uh, a king who was uh, very uh, hopeful in the Lord. By the time he became king, uh, the, the nation of Judah was in a terrible fix. The kings before him had come in and they had basically just shut down the temple. They had allowed idol worship to go on everywhere. They had forgotten about Passover and those other festivals in which they had the ebb and flow of a year uh, in keeping with their walk with God so they could stay close to Him in the, in the work that He had given them to do and the life that He had given them to live. When Hezekiah became king over Judah, the place was an absolute mess. 
And as a result of his involvement with, uh, with the Lord and his, his leadership to transform the hearts and lives of people who lived in the nation of Judah, he set about to open the temple. He had the priest to go back in and clean up the temple spiritually as well as physically. He reinstituted the sacrificial system and he uh, cleaned up the court area. He got rid of the, uh, of the false prophets. He got rid of the, the idols that were hanging around every so people could worship anything they wanted. He got rid of all of them. In fact, he knew that, uh, that back in the, uh, in the days in which God's people were going from the land of Egypt into the land that was flowing with milk and honey, that God raised up a serpent, a, an image of a serpent for them to look upon so that they could repent and be made right with God. And healing would take place. They, it was a tool that the Lord used to bring His people back to Him. Well, by the time Hezekiah came along, they had that, uh, that image of the serpent, and they were not using it anymore as a tool to worship God. They were using it as an idol and treating it like a god itself. And Hezekiah had the boldness to get rid of that, uh, that uh, item so that people could focus their attention on the Lord who had brought them into, the, into, the, uh, into being, the Lord who had given them His promise that He would take care of them and provide them the land, the promised land as it were. You'll read about Hezekiah over in the book of Proverbs. Solomon wrote so many of those Proverbs, collected them from all, uh, the, all walks of life. And all of these Proverbs put in there, the Holy Spirit pushed the pen as he jotted them down. Later on in the book of uh, Proverbs you see that Hezekiah added some more of those Proverbs that, that were in the collection that Solomon had left behind. He was a remarkable man and he followed the Lord. And he had that Assyrian king who had been troubling Israel for so long. Israel was the, uh, the uh, kingdom north of uh, Judah. And the Assyrians had gone into uh, Israel and they had taken ever, the, uh, the captive the entire uh, northern kingdom which was composed of ten tribes and they took them off into captivity never to be seen again. And now those very Assyrians who sometime before had destroyed the Israelites were knocking on the door of Judah. And they had one of their very powerful and very eloquent speakers stand at the wall of the city of Jerusalem and say, now you people know, speaking in a language that they could understand, you people know that your days are numbered. Your God is no better than any other God and we've been able to beat all of them up and we're going to beat you up. And the more he talked the worse it got. And then after a little while Hezekiah got a letter. And the letter was from the horrible emperor leader of the Assyrian nation. And he was really a letter in which he said, you probably need to get your uh, ducks in a row, get your life in order because we will take you. And they laid siege to the city of Jerusalem. And King Hezekiah took the letter into the temple and he laid it out and he started to pray. And he said, Father, you have given this land to these people You've done so very much. And now we have the threat that's coming our way from a very powerful, marauding kind of uh, military, uh, barbaric nation. God, please help us. And you'll read in the, in the narrative in 2 Kings where uh, the Lord responded to Hezekiah by way of the prophet Isaiah. And he said these words, I have heard your prayer and I will answer you. And he told Hezekiah that 
Indeed, they were going to lack food for a while. In the first year, they were going to be eating whatever the ground produced. In the second year, they would just be eating what the ground produced. But the third year from now, he said, there'll be plenty of food for your people so that they can get back on their feet. And as far as the Assyrian army is concerned, I'll take care of them. And indeed, he did. One night, something happened, and almost 200,000 Assyrian soldiers were killed. And as a result, all of the Assyrians ran back home. And the guy who was in charge of the Assyrian army, he wound up being killed by his own children. Here's the point. When Hezekiah prayed, there was a need that he took to the Lord that the Lord met because he prayed. I'll give you one other, and then we'll move on from there. Over in the New Testament, in the book of Acts, chapter 1 and chapter 2, you have this magnificent, magnificent uh, uh, portrayal of Jesus with His disciples after His resurrection. And He uh, is talking with them about what's going to happen to them and what's going to happen to Him. They ask questions about uh, the, the return of Israel to a place in which they can have the kind of justice that they needed. And when, when the Holy Spirit came and He had promised the Holy Spirit who, who had come, the promise of the father to his children, and they thought for sure that this would be the time in which Israel would be restored. And Jesus said, that's the father's business. That's not your business as to what he does with regard to the work that has to take place with the liberation of Israel and all of that. But he said, here's what's going to happen. When the Holy Spirit comes, you're going to receive power. And when you receive that power, he said, your, your power is going to be demonstrated, not in the fact that you swing from chandeliers in the church, not in the fact that you speak in other tongues, not in the fact that all of these other things that sometimes we think about when we think about the work of the Holy Spirit. But he said, when the Holy Spirit comes into your lives, you're going to be bold and you're going to bear witness starting right here and then over there and then ultimately around the world when the Holy Spirit comes. And then he ascended. Right there before them, he went up into the clouds. And you can imagine those 11 disciples left behind there looking up into the clouds. The master had been their leader for three years. He had been crucified, he had defeated death, and now he had been resurrected, and now they saw him ascend into the clouds. And they were standing there looking at him as he was leaving. And I, I, I don't know exactly what was on their minds, but if I were, were there, you know what? I'd have two, two things on my mind. Number one, I'd be asking myself the question, reckon can I go with him? And then the other question follows on that. When is he going to come back? And while they're staring into the clouds in this bewilderment, this, this wonder. I mean, Jesus had spent 40 days after his resurrection talking to the disciples, explaining to them about the work that they were going to do, showing them the manifestations of the reality that he was the crucified and risen Savior and what that would mean to them. It was glorious, and now he was gone. And as they were staring up into the clouds, the Bible says that two men came up to them and said, Men of Galilee, all of those fellows were from Galilee. This Jesus who you just saw leave from here, He's going to come again. And it was his way of saying, get your heads out of the clouds and get to the work of uh, getting ready for what he wants to do in your life next. And so you know what they did? They went back to Jerusalem. Now, if I were one of them, I would want to go back to Galilee. 
because after Jesus was crucified, a lot of hubbub throughout the city. After He was resurrected, it really got tense. And the disciples uh, knew that it was going to be a tense operation for them for quite a while to come. And the safest thing to do was to get out of Jerusalem, go back to Galilee, and to stay there for as long as they needed to. But Jesus told him Himself, He said, you stay in Jerusalem, and you stay there, do not run, do not hide, but stay there. And the Bible says in verse 12 of chapter 1 of the book of Acts that the disciples gathered together and they began to pray together having one mind. They were in one, uh, one in unity of, of mind as they began to pray. And Luke, who is the faithful historian, said that not only were the 11 disciples there, but there, was all, there were also other people. One of them was Mary, Jesus' mother. Can you imagine how she must have felt having given birth to the one who is the Messiah, having watched him live, having watched him die, having borne witness to the reality of his resurrection. So much was flooding through her mind and through her heart, and she was right there with the disciples praying every day. After this 40-day period of time, these disciples are praying together, and not only is Mary there, but you know who else is there? The brothers of Jesus. The fellows who always kept Jesus at arm's length and never would let themselves get too close to Him. There they are and they are praying because they see that the Christ who they were, were suspicious about perhaps at the beginning is now the Lord Christ who has proven by His resurrection that He is who, was, who people said He was. The living Christ, the resurrected Christ, the, the Lord Christ. And for that reason two of those half-brothers when they wrote their Bible books, one is James and the other is Jude, you'll find them introducing themselves as the uh, bond servants of Jesus Christ. Now if I were James I would be tempted to say, you're getting this word from Argel, and Jesus was my brother. We shared a bedroom together. We shared socks together and all of that. But not him. He, he said he's a bondservant of Christ. These people had been brought to a place in which they were in one, in, in one mind. There was a unity among them that had them to continue to pray. By the time we get to the, to the place in which the Lord begins to answer their prayer, there are 120 of them, and they are faithfully praying. And when they are uh, turning their attention to the Lord in prayer, do you know what happened? At the right moment, at the right time, God answered their prayer with what we've come to call the Pentecost miracle, as it were. In chapter 2 you have the, the uh, beautiful story breaking out with the wind, the mighty rushing wind. And driving up here today, 98 degree heat, man I'd like for there to have been a mighty rushing wind of some kind. It, but the mighty rushing wind, but even on top of, uh, on top of that, the, 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 the speech the speech that was like flames of fire coming out of their mouths as they stood to talk. And, and you had all of these people who had gathered there for the uh, celebration of Pentecost. Now Pentecost is a celebration that took place 50 days after Passover. And so people would come to Passover and they would have the, uh, the, the uh, Passover meal and Jesus, that's when He was crucified and He was raised from the dead during that particular period of time. 50 days later there was another festival among the Jewish people. It was called Pas uh, Pentecost. It was a time for them to celebrate the, the, uh, the, the crop, the harvest. They 
tell me that what they would do, uh, among many other things, is they would come together and they would bring the wheat and they would crush the wheat down into flour and they would make bread and they would take the bread and they would wave it into the air as a way of thanking God for His great provision that He had provided for them. So it was a time of celebration for the God who had, had given them a great harvest. They would bring their first fruits of the harvest to Him. And it was a wonderful time of celebration, this time of Pentecost. And it became even more wonderful. It became even more spectacular as the Holy Spirit came and, and, and as these people who had been praying for such a long time began to see God at work in their lives. And I'll tell you this, they saw barriers come down, language barriers. You had these people from all over different parts of the world looking at one another and saying, wait, this guy's talking, but he's talking in a language I can understand. And I haven't tracked it completely yet, but I know that some of those people who were in, in that area from those different parts of the world, as you, as you sort of chain those uh, studies out and you discover that Paul and Peter and John and James were out there uh, in those areas, when you have those names mentioned, there's a distinct correlation between the places where they went and, the, and those people who were at Pentecost experiencing what was the outflow of God's Holy Spirit so they could hear the message of God in their own language. And then on top of that, with all of this power, when the need that these people were bringing to the Lord in prayer was being met, do you know what happened? It was the perfect opportunity for people to stand up and bring up the good name of Jesus. And Simon Peter, who had betrayed Jesus and who had been restored by Jesus, I referred to him as this preacher turned, uh, this fisherman turned preacher turned fisherman turned preacher. He stands up and he tells these people, this Jesus who you crucified, God raised him from the dead. And he is Lord and Christ. And do you know what happened? 3,000 people got saved when they asked the question, what must we do in order to be saved? He gave them the gospel response. They got saved. But that's not all. These baby believers began to grow towards spiritual maturity. They were selling what Whatever they had in taking care of one another with, um, with the resources that they had gathered. They, they, took, they had their meals together. They witnessed to one another and the church continued to grow as God brought people who were being saved. And it all happened because these people were praying. And the needs that prayer can meet prompt us to ask the question, Lord, teach us to pray. Teach us to pray. You watch the news. You, you read the reports. Lord, teach us to pray. Because the, the needs that prayer can meet are so important in the day in which we live that we do well to ask Him. Lord, teach us. Please teach us to pray. That's one reason why we have to ask that question. Because there's some needs that are unmet because we aren't praying. One old preacher said it this way, and I, you're a great church. You have been for years and years and years a lighthouse in the dark place. You have been a herald for the Lord Christ for years and years and years. And I know the Lord's going to continue to bless this church in the years to come. So you can appreciate what I'm about to say from the mouth of an old preacher who said it this way. He said, you know what? A church usually gets what the people in the church pray for. And so I ask you, what are you, what are you praying for? 
in my church where I'm, I'm the pastor, uh, God's been so good to us. We uh, have been able to uh, ex experience uh, a l more blessings from Him than I could ever imagine. Don't have time to, to bring up. But it does beg the question, in light of all of what God has given to us, in light of the way that He's placed us where we are, what are we praying for? And the needs that prayer can meet can help us to live out the reality that when we do the Lord's work, we need Him to help us. And that help comes by way of prayer. Now let me offer another reason why these disciples asked Jesus to teach them to pray. And it's the reason that you and I are going to explore together uh, over the course of the hours that God gives us to study Luke chapter 11. And it has to do with Jesus Himself. The example that Jesus has set, coupled with the needs that prayer can meet, give us plenty of reason for us to take that question in the first century and apply it to the 21st century and ask the Lord to teach us to pray. You know, it says in the first verse of the, of the 11th chapter that the disciple came to Jesus after watching him pray. Jesus was a disciple-making uh, leader. Our Savior taught us how to not just see people come to Christ as new converts, as new people who are baby believers, but to grow people toward, uh, toward spiritual maturity in Him. And, and one of the ways that Jesus taught His disciples was by allowing them to watch Him while He went about the business of His own daily disciplines with the Lord. And any number of times in the Gospel accounts you read where uh, the disciples would say that Jesus would go up on a mountain to pray. Or while Jesus was at prayer, every morning He went to pray. And those kinds of observations give me the, the impression that Jesus wanted His disciples to know that prayer was an important discipline for Him, and therefore it needed to be an important discipline for them as well. How many times do you think Jesus must have been just physically exhausted? And do you remember the time especially in which Jesus was with His disciples and the crowds were flooding toward Him? And, and uh, the, the, the disciples even said to Him, Master, everybody over here wants you to come and be with them. And, and the Master said in response, well, if they want us to come this way, guys, I'm going to have to ask you to let us go up this way and be by ourselves for a while. After the death of uh, John the Baptist, uh, Jesus uh, got the disciples away, but He never could stay away for very long. It wasn't until the middle of the night that He was actually able to go to the mountain uh, there and pray. And even while He was praying, He saw the disciples down in the boat scuffling about because there was a storm that was much bigger than they could have anticipated. And He went and helped them and walked on the water and made His way to them. They knew what it was like, not only for Jesus to have those regular moments of prayer, but they knew what it was like for Jesus to take the time when He was troubled, when He was tired, when He was facing a great difficulty to spend time in prayer. And as a result of the, their observation of Jesus, they saw a correlation between the time He spent in prayer and the miracles He performed, and the ability of Jesus to get things done. And they wanted to be able to have the kind of prayer life that had been modeled for them by the Lord Christ Himself. And in keeping with what I just said, don't raise your hand. But let me ask you this question. Would you like to be able to pray in a way that made a difference?
Wouldn't you love to be able to pray in a way so that when you pray, you know that you're meeting a need, that through that prayer time, a need is being met, and that through uh, what God is allowing you to do, He's going to give you resources beyond your wildest imagination so that you can get them done. When we think about Jesus being the perfect example for prayer, we think about Him in those moments when He's in great difficulty, but one of the most poignant moments in Jesus' life is when they were nailing Him to the cross, and He was praying for the very people who were nailing Him there and asking the Father to forgive them, for they did not know what they were doing. When he was on the cross and the, con and the conversation with God that continued until he breathed his last, those kinds of opportunities to observe Jesus at prayer helps us to know that this discipline of, of prayer for the in the life of Jesus meant so much to him that the disciples wanted him to teach them how to do it, to teach them to pray in a way that would make a difference. Luke chapter 11 is one of those chapters in the Bible in which Jesus answers the disciples' question. He meets their request, and He begins to talk with them. What we're going to discover over the course of the sessions that we'll have in front of us are some of the teachings of Jesus regarding prayer, first with regard to a method, a path of prayer that can make it so that we are, there's a sense of fulfillment when we pray, and we close the gap between us and the Lord in that process. And then Jesus goes on to answer some of the questions that we usually are raised by by believers when we don't understand what He is doing as we pray. And we'll explore that together over the course of the sessions together uh, as we uh, walk through the Bible passages uh, one verse at a time. But tonight I simply want to ask you to join me in turning to the Lord and asking Him, Lord, teach us to pray. Teach us to pray. You may have been a Christian for years and years and years, and you pray regularly. But with what's facing us as a, a, a world in a world full of darkness, what we're trying to do in poking holes in that darkness is the Lord's work. And we cannot do the Lord's work without the Lord's help. And the Lord's help comes when we pray. So pray with me right now. Father, how I thank you for the privilege you give me to talk from my heart and from your word about the value of that little question that the disciples asked Jesus, the request that they made to Him. And I pray that that uh, request will be replicated in our lives because we've been reminded of how powerful a disciplined prayer is in your life as you ministered with the disciples then and as you continue to prompt us to pray now. I pray that you'll guide the folks who won't be able to attend the studies to continue to press on and ask you in the same way that all, the rest of us will be able to ask you to teach us to pray so that the needs that you want us to meet can be uh, met by way of intercession, supplication. They can be met by persistence so that we pray without ceasing as your people who spend time with you, and in that time with you, we spend time with others, and in the conversation see you do tremendous things that we never thought possible. So we thank you for what you're going to do. Guide us as we ask that question, as we make that request in Jesus' name, 
Amen. Pastor, would you mind uh, coming and wrapping it up for us tonight? Uh, I want to thank our, our, the pastor years ago, eight years ago, I guess now, I picked at him and called him young squire and all that and said that he had to, you know, uh, had, that didn't learn how to shave. I'm telling you what, you guys have made him into quite a young man, huh? He's an del- excellent, uh, excellent pastor, and I'm grateful for his leadership, not just here, but uh, in lots of other areas in Christian community. So, Pastor, if you'll wrap it up for us. Would you uh, show your appreciation, Dr. Smith, tonight? We are grateful to him. I told you, and I mean, so many of you, you've heard him already uh, through the years, and he is a great expositor. And uh, I am grateful that we're, we're able to have him this week. Hope that you'll come. We'll start at 930 in the morning, and uh, we'll go to, what, about 11? We have a little 1130, and then we're going to eat. So if you really don't care to hear him, you still come to eat, all right? So just kidding, just kidding. But uh, we're we're coming to feast in the morning spiritually, and then we'll get to eat afterwards. And I hope that you would just uh, take this opportunity that God gives us. Hey, just what he said spoke to me. What are we praying for? If we get what we ask or we get what our requests and petitions would be, what are we asking? And uh, that spoke spoke to my heart tonight. So let's uh, let's be faithful to this study and let's just seek him and ask him to teach us how to pray. Thank you again for being here tonight. And I'm going to go ahead and dismiss you. Okay, you're dismissed.